Hello and welcome to Demo Tapes, the music podcast which hits rewind on the bands and scenes we love. I'm Rick Martin and this is the point where I normally introduce my co-host Sarah Jane Kemp, but it's finally happened, schedules have got the better of us and she's had to drop out for this episode just for this one week. Uh, but fortunately we have a bit of a super sub on the bench all the way from, I think it's Taipei that he's in at the moment, uh, Jamie Fullerton, sometime enemy uh, journalist. Worked for Time Out as well, now a freelance journalist for newspapers like The Telegraph out in the uh, Far East. And if listeners can cast their mind back to the last series, also a guest we had on talking about Baby Shambles. But yeah, thanks for joining us, Jamie. No worries, you're welcome. I, f- I feel like Anthony Rossamando, the uh, substitute guitarist who replaced Pete Dotti in the Libertines to play Reading and Leeds festivals back in the day. Absolutely, and quite I guess quite an, an apt segue into the fact this week's guest is uh, Adam Fajcek, once of Baby Shambles, I think still of Baby Shambles, if Baby Shambles are uh, such a thing. So yeah, dr- drummer in that band, now a psychotherapist, which is probably the thing we're more interested in talking to about on this episode. So I guess who better to have on the line with us to kind of co-present this episode than uh, yeah, enemies, resident, libertines, Baby Shambles, kind of Pete Doherty expert back in the day. Yeah, Mr. Baby Shambles, as they didn't call me down in Whitechapel circa 2005. But yeah, I I guess at this time of year, um, not a lot of new music to talk about, but we've both been, uh, I guess, diving into our Spotify end of the year wrap ups, haven't we? Yes, that that sort of automated data crunch that Spotify does where you click a few buttons and it defines your year in terms of your top songs and artists that everyone's been. It's amazing marketing, isn't it? Like, like everyone's just been going on about Spotify for the last week or so um, and sharing their their top artists and songs. My my top song of 2019 was Melody of Love by Hot Chip, which I had on repeat for probably about three months. It's the first song on their latest album, A Bath Full of Ecstasy, which is probably the best titled song of the year as well. Um, it's The song's amazing. It's like an electro-soul classic, and the album is genuinely brilliant as well. And seeing that sort of data in front of me on that Spotify roundup reminded me of writing about a Hot Chip album, which I think was One Life Stand, maybe their third or fourth album, in Enemy um, many years ago. And I remember writing that we should probably all accept that Hot Chip are never going to make a truly great album, just great songs, you know, all the singles like Ready for the Floor and Over and Over and all that. Um, And then Hot Chip tweeted at me um, to have a go at me for comparing the harmonising on one of their songs to Robson and Jerome, which uh, admittedly wasn't the most um, positive (laughs) comparison, but they seem to take take offence at that. Damning Um, with faint praise, I mean. Yeah, but I've been proved wrong. Bath Full of Ecstasy is a genuinely great album from start to finish. They've done it. It's awesome. Have you heard it? Oh yeah, no, I'm a, I'm a massive fan. That didn't make make my uh, top ten, but yeah, I've been listening to that album quite a lot. It's the one that's got um, oh, there's another really big track on that. Hungry Child, I think it's called. Hungry Child. Very very consistent. Well, you know, yeah, kind of. They, they've been going for ages now, and it's just good to hear a band coming back with a powerhouse album like that. I kind of thought Hot Chip maybe have had their creative peak. I remember when they, they were on EMI at the start, and there were sort of hopes that they were going to be a huge kind of globe straddling band in the sense that LCD's sound system kind of were a band that they toured with for a while and Al Doyle the guitarist in Hot Chip has basically become a member of that band as well I think but um, and it never really quite happened and they moved to the Domino label and I mean putting out good records and good singles for years but you kind of felt that like yeah that peak was over and they came back with that album and it just I, I, I just for me it was levels above what anything else they've done before so just shows bands can surprise you and um I don't know, it's not all always about 
hitting your peak when you're sort of 23 or whatever. And but they've sort of carved, of, carved their own niche, haven't too. they, really? There's, there's no one quite like them. Into, I mean, it's almost like that kind of crying on the dance floor sort of um, vibe, isn't it? You know, like the nerds crying on the dance floor because they... Yeah, uh, glorious, they glorious British. Can't the women in front of them. Yeah, a, a gl- brilliantly <laughs> British. And I remember, I think it was Priya Elan, the writer for Enemies and now at The Guardian, um, saying that uh, it sounded like hot shit were sort of bashing out on their rhythms on upturned pots and pans in a in a kitchen or something. And I kind of, yeah, I, li- I like that sort of slight British naffness um, sort of cutting through it. Yeah, great band. And um, that album's definitely worth checking out. What were your top songs from the year on Spotify? I was, I was wondering if you'd be able to guess what was on my top song. You might be quite surprised by what was the top song. Not indie uh, music. I'm going to get, what, what about Pond? Pond are in there, yeah, you're right. Pond are my top artist, but then top sync, top song is actually by Slipknot, Unsainted. <laughs> I don't know why that's funny, because Slipknot are just an enormous band, aren't they? But um, okay, so Slipknot also hitting creative peaks in the same way that Hot Chip are in 2019. I think you could argue that, yeah. It's 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 a really it's a really solid album. That I mean, everything that you'd want from them, kind of um, kind of and more, you know, in terms of. Um, well, what every... I want from Slipknot is mainly masks with enormous cocks protruding from the front plastic yeah. ones. What's well, his that, name? That, Dick knows. That, that's always been kind of the cartoon view of them, and yes, you know they are a bit of mm. a cartoon. But musically, they are very, very good. I mean, I say this as someone who, you know, I'm not the biggest metal head. You know, they're the only metal band that would ever get anywhere near something like this for me. But because for me, they just kind of stand apart from the rest of that of that scene. But musically, they are streets ahead of, of anything else you would hear of, of kind of sort of chartable metal. I guess you could call it. Yeah, and they're huge as well. And I think when you're not particularly involved in that heavy metal scene and that, that music and that, that genre, it is tempting to see some of the large bands in there as these kind of weird weird cult things. I think with Slipknot as well, with their image, the cartooniness, the um, yeah, the masks, the characters they play. But they're, I mean, you know, they're just an enormous, hugely successful band as well, who just headline massive festivals globally. Um, and they I mean, they still chart as well. I mean, I think Iowa their biggest album was number one in the UK charts. I think their last one might have been as well. So. I, I, Iowa went to number one the week that the Strokes album came out. So yeah. Iowa was number one, Strokes was two, kind of infamously. Um, not bigger than the Strokes. Yeah. That all kind of added to that narrative of, you know, the reason that the new rock revolution TM was uh, was coming in was to kind of blow away all the new metal um, that was kind of dominating yeah, the charts at the time. And also I think their drummer drums upside down on the stage as well which I think is well you used to yeah they they replaced Joey Jordison a few years ago there was some you know half half the band have left now for various reasons but yeah I don't know if the new drummer does the drumming upside down thing but I was yeah I remember going some of their tours where where they did that just a good spectacle it's like going to the circus or something isn't it (laughs) yeah Um, I have to say a lot of my other Spotify top artists were a lot more I guess relaxed than Slipknot which I think is quite interesting because it shows how people or certainly me, consume Spotify and how and where they do it. Like Brian Eno was actually one of my top artists. And that's mainly because I listen to Brian Eno as background music while I'm writing because most of it doesn't have lyrics and it's just incredibly relaxing ambient music to listen mm, to. Mm. So it, it, it sort of you know, Spotify is telling me that one of my favourite songs of the year was The Ship, which is like a 20-minute floaty ambient piece by Brian Eno from a couple of years ago. Um, it's probably not what I'd pick out as a banger that I'd play as one of my songs of the year, but it is one of the ones I've listened to most. Also, um, it tells you your hist- recent history in Spotify as well, the you know, artist you listen to most in whatever year. Last year, my top artist was Pie Corner Audio, which is this <laughs> guy who makes... Um, makes dystopian sounding instrumental music 
And I was turned on to this by Charlie Brooker, who mentioned it in a podcast. I think it was Adam Buxton's podcast. He said he listened to this as background music when he was writing Black Mirror. So I went and listened to that, and it is really brilliant kind of driving background music. So, um, yeah, I think you have to take that into account as well. It's not just like your favourite artists and songs. It's where you're listening to it as well. In my case, just trying to concentrate on bashing out articles. Yeah, and I know what you mean. When I was going through kind of my year by years, it, it does sort of change. Some some of it, I think, it's because I must have been sharing an account with my ex-wife. So some of it, that's why <laughs> one year it said the the top song was My Chemical Romance. Na 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 brackets. Na 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 na. Was that your was was that your song? That. As we say, <laughs> as a couple. <laughs> it must it must have been yeah it must have been. My my top song from two thousand eleven was a live version of a B side by the Vaccines. And I, I re- like a live, not even just the B side, a live version of the B side. And I really don't remember playing that song on repeat in 2011 much, but I guess I must have. It does mm, delve up mm. some interesting dark times or, well, interesting times from your past as well, but also some nice things as well. Like in 2016, my top artist was Erica Badu, and I'd kind of forgotten about that. I had a period of a couple of months where I just got really obsessed with her music. Yeah, I just uh, she released a mixtape that year, which was amazing, which was like a sort of gateway to to the rest of her back catalogue, and I just got really deep into that. So um, a gateway to a type of music you know nothing about, probably. Just wanted to mention genres as well. The Spotify Data Roundup gives you a breakdown of the genres you listen to most. Indie rock was my most prominent genre uh, listened to in two thousand and nineteen, which does make sense. Followed by chamber psych. And I don't actually yeah, I was, know what... I, I've had chamber music in mind as well. Yeah, chamber <laughs> yeah. pop. I think that's what Beach House are classified as. So uh, possibly, yeah. I, I just don't know what chamber psych is, but I, I guess I know that I like it, so I should probably find out <laughs> more about it. Um, music made by people with large beards, I think. But yeah, I guess that's probably probably enough from our own list, but I would like to hear from listeners on uh, on what's been on their Spotify list. So do get in touch with us on social media, at DemotatesPod on Twitter, and at DemotatesPod on Instagram. Yeah, and if we see any truly uh, kind of batshit mental list that, that you send in, we'll definitely talk about them on a uh, future episode. Um, batshit, batshit mental was my third most listened to genre <laughs> um, Should we have a bit of music news? Music news! And as you'll notice there, I have finally uh, sorted out a jingle for music news. Uh, so yeah, this is the part of the show where I pick out some of the weird and the wonderful from kind of the the world of music news, a bit of light relief, I guess, at a time where Brexit and the election and, uh, you know, things are getting a bit heavy. So, yeah, so did you see this story about um, a Michael Jackson musical? I mean, probably nothing surprising in a Michael Jackson musical cash-in, but the fact that it's told from the point of view of his white glove? Yep. This is a play called For the Love of the Glove, and this is going to be showing in L.A., in late January 2020, and it is supposedly about aliens shaped like gloves that feed on on virgin boys' blood. And um, this habit seemingly explains, at least in the world of the play, why Michael Jackson had the, I guess, suspicious, we should call them, relationships that he did with children. Alleged, alleged. We we don't have a very good big legal budget on uh, demo tape, so the the alleged, his his alleged interests, I guess we'll, we'll put it like that. Yeah, we do have to be slightly careful here, both in terms of legalities and tastes, I guess. But um, yeah, it's written by uh, a playwright and well, scriptwriter called Julian Nitzberg. It also features puppets, including one of a young Jacko with a huge afro, which is quite an interesting image. The gloves themselves don't look as sinister as the 
tagline and title suggest they look more like kind of characters you'd see on a cereal box or something so it does seem to be a bit of dissonance in terms of the tone of the characters and the kind of habits that might be depicted in the in the play this does remind me of an old edition of loaded magazine that came out shortly after i worked there as a staff writer back when i was 21 Um, they mocked up fake pantomime posters featuring celebrities one starring jacko called michael jackson gets aladdin see what they've done there um where they had they had review quotes on the poster one describing it as probing uh, another describing it as touching and jacko was billed as the man on every boy's lips I mean, the golden age of lad mags, eh? Summed up in in probably one anecdote. Uh, and I guess on a, maybe a slightly uh, lighter note, uh, in, in other music news, uh, Tyson Fury recording, that's world heavyweight champion boxer and sometime Former. WWE star. He got stripped of his titles, didn't he? I mean, certainly if I'd ever won a, a heavyweight championship in boxing, I think I would consider myself a champion for sort of the, uh, sort of the rest of my life. But, um, okay, champ. Yeah, and you know he's, he seems to be everywhere at the moment. Tyson Fury, you know, he was well, he's got a book out. That might explain it. In, in WWE a few weeks ago, I know you're, you're probably not an avid viewer. Oh no, I watched WWE it. Like he me. he won unsurprisingly, as did Floyd Mayweather when he um, was in WWE against Big Show, who's like about sort of eight foot or something ridiculous. So it was this little and large battle. The Tyson the Tyson Fury match was kind of boring. It was just like two big lumps pretending to hit each other for 15 minutes whereas yeah i mean that, that that's um, wwe in a nutshell isn't it <laughs> that is wwe two yeah people i guess i guess I, I suppose arguably more interesting as a curveball is the fact that he's released a duet with robbie williams absolutely yeah so you've, you've listened to this what do you think yeah it's called bad sharon um it's off robbie's christmas album it's kind of interesting because it wasn't too many years ago when Robbie was complaining that he couldn't get on the Radio 1 playlist anymore because um, he wasn't considered you know, edgy enough, I guess, or um, or modern enough. And now he's doing these kind of weird, cosy Christmas albums. So I guess he's embraced that to an extent. Um, yeah, it's a song about lyrically about getting lashed up at office Christmas parties and kind of lampooning that a bit. In a, an, um, Apparently, Robbie was in... Tyson's dressing room in Las Vegas before a fight and asked him then if he'd do a duet Tyson said yes and then went out and probably won the fight so Robbie providing a level of inspiration there in terms of his uh, his boxing career as well I guess musically there's not too much point in critically dissecting what is essentially kind of a, a, a comedy Christmas novelty single but um, I mean it is it is pretty awful. Let, let, let's let, let's do it anyway though eh yeah, yeah, okay. Um, I mean, yeah, it, it. I mean, it is just. It is kind of cringingly awful, and it just pushes my buttons slightly because it seems to straddle that horrible line where the intention with the sort of mildly comedic lyrics is to come across with a wink and a nod and a level of irony, but actually musically, it's. I mean, it is just straight up Christmas novelty cheese. So you can't really you have you can't really be in both counts. You have to have one or the other. Um, it sounds like the kind of song a usually humorless and slightly tedious uncle or aunt who you only see at Christmas might play you on YouTube thinking it's hilarious. Um, <laughs> you have to, and you kind of have to humour them after they've spent 10 minutes trying to find the song on the site or something. It's also worth pointing out that um, Robbie Williams is now teetotal and has been for many years. And Tyson Fury has talked extensively about his former alcohol and cocaine problems. So you have to assume that they're singing about 
boozy Christmas parties of the past rather than the present or the future, I guess. Yeah, so it's, it's a nostalgic thing. But, I mean, look, I, <laughs> yeah. I have a slightly different opinion to you on this, which I was surprised, and I know that Autotune probably played a part in this, that Tyson sounds like he can sort of uh, sing. And for me, the benchmark at the moment of celebrities being able to sing is the UK X Factor, which I imagine you haven't seen. I've only really seen kind of in passing, and it's been been truly bizarre in a way. You know, you've got people like Martin Bashir appearing on it and uh, one of the, the women who appears on The Chase. Like, we're not talking A-list celebrities here, but one of the guys who appeared was, was Vinnie Jones. Um, <laughs> and, I mean, he's a mate of Simon Cowell's, you know, and he'd, had, he'd been bereaved, to be fair. His wife had died. So he kind of got put straight through to the, the live shows with, with kind of not enough, not much fuss. And he's been doing versions of things like Blues Brothers songs. And he really cannot sing, but was still getting through each week. So if, if say, Vinnie Jones was the benchmark of uh, sort of celebrity hardman uh, singing, I mean, Tyson Fury's definitely a few notches above that, if, yeah, if that's um, the watermark. And, I mean, Robbie Williams isn't exactly Charlotte Church when it comes to vocal ability, is he? So I think it's all it's all comparative. I mean, they'd be absolutely perfect for the uh, enemy uh, Christmas pub crawl feature, wouldn't they? Although, I suppose, not drinking anymore. Well, no, so. they wouldn't, because they don't drink booze. So then maybe they could do the <laughs> sort of singles <laughs> Still get them to play Twister and stuff, though. Yeah, I'm all about Chris Kamara's Christmas album, I think. that's that's To me, that's nudging ahead of Tyson Fury's. Tell me a bit more about that. I was, I was kind of aware he'd done... I think I saw him on Lorraine the other day, or something like that, <laughs> talking about that. But, yeah, yeah. Uh, fill, me, fill me in a bit more on Chris Kamara's Christmas album. Well, if people album. aren't familiar with Chris Kamara, he is a football... Um, pundit who is not known to be the most on the ball when reporting on sports and sort of like missing things happening over his shoulder while he's holding a unbelievable Jeff. Well, this his catchphrase is unbelievable Jeff um, because he's talking to Jeff Stelling, the uh, Sky uh, Sky Sports News presenter in the studio. But um, one thing I do like about it was that on the advert for the album, the Christmas album he's released, a load of um, review quotes pop up, and every single one is just one word saying unbelievable. So like mm. Daily Mirror, unbelievable. <laughs> so. Yeah, I think, again, that's delivered... It's one of the things that, that is sort of presented as having a level of, of humour to it and knowingness, but is actually just loads of really, really cheesy Christmas songs. So, um, But hey, you know, tis the season, and you know, these things are a bit of a laugh, aren't they? So I think we're the, the Scrooges for analysing them too much. Probably wrap up on the, the music news now and get into kind of the main element of this episode, which is my interview with Adam Fichek or Adam Fichek. Adam Fichek, how do you pronounce his name? That's the first thing. How do you pronounce his name? I always said Fichek. Yeah, I think and it is he, he, And I, I was I never corrected, Fichek. so I'm going to go stick with that. So that's Adam Fichek, drummer uh, in Baby Shambles and now a sort of psychotherapist. So he's someone that you, I know, have come into contact with or you came into contact with quite a lot down the years at NME, and one of the one of the reasons actually we thought we'd wrote you in for this week's episode. So you you interviewed Adam back in the day, didn't you? Yeah, I was Baby Shambles. Were, I, I used to cover them a heck of a lot when I was at NME. When I first started, it was the time that they just they were just about to release Shot as a Nation, their second album. So that was really gearing up, and Baby Shambles were really being pushed and kind of you know touted as as a proper band rather rather than this slightly ropey side project, the ever-shifting band members that Pete Doherty had started up, um, you know, when the Libertines were kind of gearing down when he was in his, in his drug mire and had been booted out of the band. Um, so it was a very interesting time. I don't know, Baby Shambles always were seen as being, I guess, the, the being in the shadow of 
the libertines as such and yeah like more of a side project and a vehicle for pete when he wasn't doing libertines and things but i think that doesn't really do them a service they were abandoned their own right they had their own dynamics and they definitely definitely like the the, the year or the year or so i spent going to pretty much every gig they played in london um it was it was extremely exciting and unpredictable in a way that so many bands weren't at the time like even you know the bands that were caught or enemy doing the indie rock live circuit you know essentially playing the same show every night very predictable right down to the lights flashing at the same time and you know same set list and baby shambles you just you, you never had that they'd play three nights in some random scraggy brookston venue not go on stage till two and two a.m whole thing might collapse after 10 minutes or they might play for you know two hours or play some songs that you, you know never been released and still haven't been released or just play some raucous classics you know just you just one of those bands where you felt that you had to go to every show in case you missed something whether it was a you know like a complete meltdown or um or, or something or something much more euphoric it was um mm. yeah it was an exci- mm. it was an it was an exciting time certainly in that in that enemy world and bubble that i was in yeah so i guess listeners are probably wondering why I get adam on the show now and to be fair this this fits in a broader narrative of what we've been talking about on this series around i guess mental health uh, and mental health in the music industry because you know i hadn't heard from adam in quite a long time i was aware he was still releasing music under his roses kings castles uh, kind of moniker but uh i saw him on chris mcclaw's documentary the chris mcclaw being the guest we had on the last episode uh where he did a documentary for vice on kind of addiction in the music industry and adam was on there along with kind of other musicians and music industry figures but he wasn't necessarily presented as you know here's a musician who had a drink problem it was more this guy's now a psychotherapist a bit of a psychotherapist to the stars and i thought that was a really kind of interesting you know juxtaposition to go from being in a band with one of the most kind of notorious rock stars notorious for his uh, sort of substance con- consumption to now being a, a psychotherapist. So I, I don't know. Did you know that he'd he'd made this career switch? Uh, yeah, but only because I read it on Pop Bitch, the, um, the sort of celebrity gossip emailer that had of had its heydays in the nineties and still exists. So um, yeah, that was when I when I became aware of it. I guess I wasn't enormously surprised because I don't, you know Adam always struck me as being. a really intelligent switched on guy who i'm sure was capable of doing many things outside of just you know, not just well outside of being a musician and playing playing drums in that band so um yeah i'm not hugely i'm not hugely surprised he's been been able to establish himself and apply himself in, in another field yeah so this is uh, an interview i recorded with adam fight earlier this week and uh, i'm literally just to set the scene sat on his um sat on his couch in one of his clinics and, and at the end of the interview i have to cut it short because he's got another uh, patient coming in so I guess you know the uh, what, what's the word method not method acting what would be the kind of the journalistic equivalent of method I don't acting? know Basically, I don't know but was he charging you by the hour again <laughs> no I, th- I think I, I, I got this one this one for free but I certainly knew how it would have felt to have been one of his patients because I was literally uh, sat on a sort of chaise long in, in his office to, uh, chewing the fat so yeah this is uh, an interview recorded with Adam Fajcek earlier this week in uh, central London yeah, so I'm here with Adam Fajcek, Um and you know I think you know we're in we're in your clinic in in sort of central West London. Yeah, W1. And you know I was thinking about this on the way that you know it's probably not uncommon to see um, musicians in in clinics like this, except they would be the patients rather than those giving the the kind of therapy. So, you know, you've been described as a rock star psychologist. What kind of instigated the switch from being you know a musician in in some of the biggest bands over the last twenty yeah, years yeah. to to now a very, very different career. What was that spark? 
think, um, I mean, there was a spark to it, but I don't really consider it as a switch. I kind of hold in, integrate both of them, really. I mean, regarding, I still release solo stuff as a musician, and the Baby Shambles thing, I consider myself still a part of that, and, um, you know, there's, there's been rumblings about doing more stuff with that. Obviously, I was on hiatus because of the Libertines, but I do see that it's this, this, this fluidity. Um, so more so, rather than a switch, it's like this new area of exploration, as it were. Um, and for me, it was, you know, I came into it more as a service user, really. I, uh, I got a lot out of therapy myself, um, struggled initially to find a therapist that really understood the music industry. Um, and then through getting, you know, from really finding it really rewarding um, and healing in therapy, decided to train. I just finished a master's in music production and the thesis of that master's was about the emotional content of music. So I lent into music therapy. I thought, for me, I get a lot of music as well. So I find it really you know, emotionally stabilising, regulating, all sorts of things I get from music. So I was going to be a music therapist, combine that with being a musician as well. And then doing some introductory music therapy courses, realising that maybe I'd like to more focus or lay more focus in being a psychotherapist but using music. So the next part of my training kind of concludes it where I'm just doing, I'm doing about to do a doctorate which will be on top of my psychotherapeutic training, which will be how therapists can use music, uh, recorded music, rather than playing music. Um, yeah, to, to enable themselves to maybe get in touch with some some of their history, which might be helpful for them, So it's more of an accumulation of experiences than one kind of epiphany moment where you thought, this, this could be something I could really that yeah. could really be a big part of my career kind of moving forward. Yeah, and it forward. is, and it is. It's a huge part now, but I, I really want to combine both. I think it's very difficult to be a therapist that specialises with musicians in the music industry if if you haven't kind of got a toe in that water. And for me, it's such an integral part of who I am. I still practice every day. I still release. So not only am I a musician, I'm a musician that's also in a commercial framework, which is important as well. Um, so they're, they're both kind of vital to who I am really and I think when I was a musician or not I still am a musician but when I was I guess all of my essence was in the music industry it was I always felt that there was there was a bit of a hole when I was missing out on something of maybe a bit more uh, I needed a bit more nourishment or a bit more richness and I think I found it now you know, with this real this real innate human connection that I get from being a therapist I find I've really got a good balance now and does that connection, you think, come from the empathy of the fact that, you know, whatever maybe problems put at your door or things that you're discussing yeah, yeah. in your sessions, that you can either relate to it from something personally from being a musician or musicians that you've worked with and, and been around? Is empathy really that key, you think? I think, it, I think it's really important. I'm not saying that a therapist that doesn't understand music can't be of any help, because I'm sure they can. But for me, I think it's two things. It's about being a musician. So even if we don't frame that in the context of the commercial world, being a musician has its own set of struggles anyway. You know, we always, there's so many innate qualities about being an artist, I think. You know, there's a huge insecurity attached to it because when is enough enough, etc.? And are we using it to escape certain things? Are we using it to be validated? So there's that. And then the second area is being able to identify, and I'm sure you'll know this yourself, where people have this, this image of, of being in the music industry as one thing when we're on the outside of it. And then when we're on the inside of it, it's a very different animal. And I think we can't even grasp that concept unless we've been 
in it. You know, I grew up being a huge music fan, reading the enemies and the melody makers and watching all these bands, touring with these bands. And there was a huge part of my social construction about who I was, wearing the t-shirts, buying into it, you know, coming up through, I guess, Baggy and Britpop. It was huge for me, massive, culturally as well. And then I was lucky enough to be reframed on the inside of it as well. And it was a, a totally different animal, in a sense. Mm, mm. And I think you can't really grasp that unless you've seen the nuts and the bolts of how the industry works. And for me, going through that journey, I lost a lot of that. I lost a lot of the excitement and the, and the, the magnetised quality, kind of culturally, of what I was into as a teenager. Mm. And then I come out of it and I had to unpick all that. And it took me a while. And now I'm at a really healthy place where I can almost enjoy both sides to it again. Um, and from that experience working with musicians, and I work with a lot of profile musicians that are not only in the commercial industry, then what I'd call the professional kind of, uh, I guess the, the more commercial and commoditized. So some of them aren't branded, but they're out gigging every night in London, you know, doing cover band stuff. So they're still professional musicians, but they don't yeah. rely so much on the, the commercial branding. And even before Baby Shambles, I was involved with doing a lot of professional function bands as well. So I know that area as well. And then I know the importance of branding as well on top of that from all the commercial stuff. So I think I've got kind of a good overview of, of that, which is really helpful sitting with musicians, I think. And I've read that as part of your, your kind of studies and, your, uh, and, and that side of things, you've been writing an actual research piece on mental health in the music industry. Yeah, I mean, I've read a lot about it and, and part of the doctorate I'm, I'm looking into. I've also just contributed to a big book on, on addictions as well in the music industry and obviously the, the Vice stuff. Um, yeah, and, and my, my approach to that is it's three tiers. So you've got the industry itself, which is a struggle navigating this. Then you've got the, the psychological aspect of what it does for the person who's been elevated. Suddenly they want, you know, speaking for myself, suddenly you've got this worth because you are somebody in this big band. And then there's a musical element, the actual playing of an instrument. So for me, there was that kind of correlation of the triangle of different things that I experienced and how they then interact with your own narrative and your own wounds and bumps and bruises and what comes out the other end. That's my interest. Um, so I'm trying to kind of boil all that down and something a bit more palatable into a book. Um, yeah, I'm just trying to make it readable and not too academic because I think it's really important. I think people are really interested in it also. There's a lot of books or a lot of articles that are written, but I think they're not really ever written from an experiential viewpoint. It's always from, you know, we've looked at this research and we suspect that if you're touring, you're going to be really unwell. And I think it, it, needs, it, needs, it needs a much more focused lens experientially from people that have been on the road, but also can then frame that in the context of some of the more clinical experience, which is quite rare, I think, in this industry. Yeah, I think it's interesting what you're talking about there in, term, in terms of music and that, you know, I, I must view it as you know, music can put the pressure on someone where they, they need, you know, they might yeah. need help or it can harm your mental health, but music in of itself is a holistic therapy, yeah, listening to yeah, music yeah. and different types of music. So is, is that where you kind of sometimes see your role sitting in that music can both be kind of the, the curse and the blessing at the same time? Yeah, I, I think it also can be, uh, listening to music can also be a curse. Um, you know, people naturally assume, especially if we go into the sports psychology element where, yeah, this kind of music 
will elevate your heartbeat, thus you will be more efficient. It's not always the case because we can all use music if we're feeling quite down and melancholic. We can actually use music which makes us feel sadder, I think. So I don't think it's, it's as easy as some people suggest that this music makes you feel this way. I think it's very different I and mean, it's very subjective. Um, and so if people want to sit in a particular misery, they can induce that within music as well. So that's the recorded side of it. But yeah, then I think there's all the other stuff as well. There's a the social cultural stuff about identity, and which is much more prevalent in pop music or indie music. It's about the image, it's about the, the logo, the branding, more so than it is, for example, in the jazz world or the classical world. Which exactly, about, yeah, yeah. You've got to take care of business. Whereas I was in a band that we didn't really take care of business a lot of the time, but what we did do is we had this real ethos and essence of like, we're just going to be up there and be as messy as we want to be and this kind of sense of rebelliousness. So it's, there's many different areas, I think, in music. I mean, I do want to talk about Baby Shambles a, a little bit sort of further on in the podcast, but I think we'll return to that, mm. that point there. But I was also interested in some of the comments you've made about you know, how you think the music industry can support, moderate, or exasperate psychological mm. struggle. And it's interesting that you know, on this series of podcasts, we've interviewed people like uh, Tom Clark from The Enemy, Phil mm. Etheridge from The Twang, John McClure. And it feels like mental health it's been a real kind of recurring theme of some of the interviews mm. we've done and uh, and this sense that maybe there hasn't been that support network for, for musicians jobbing you know the ones that yeah, you're talking about yeah. more on the commercial side so I guess what did you exactly mean by you know that that working in this industry can support moderate or exasperate I think particularly exasperate psychological yeah struggles. Well, I think it's important to hold them all together because I think at the moment there is this huge you know the industry is innately destructive and, and I think that can be slightly biased um, what we've just discussed there is being a musician by its very nature if you suddenly if you if you derive a lot of self-worth from being a musician and then you're being validated by thousands of people that's going to be quite elevating in a way you know it's going to be quite maybe it's going to be really helpful in your life to an extent um, alongside you know as, as we all listen to music to, to, to feel good and to feel bad but I mean the exasperate side of it I think uh, my experience, which has shifted, and I think the industry is shifting, was we were essentially freelance, um, kind of, yeah, we were just freelance. We were really hired, we hired by a label. They put the money into us as a business venture. But other than that, there's no real security. There's no sense of, okay, well, this is the career plan. It's a bit of an anomaly. There's no other industry, I think, which has that, that relationship with its product. Um, and, and I don't mean products in a real demeaning context. I don't mean like that. I'm, I think when a lot of the people I work with that are going into the industry, we, we go in with that viewpoint where you are a product. I don't mean to devalue you, but you need to go in with an essence that you are a product and people want to be making money out of you. And if you want to just be have your artistic integrity and not um, be malleable as a product, then maybe it's best that you don't enter this industry. Because this industry, by its very nature, it is an industry, it's a business. People are going to want something back from you. Um, and we'd be lying to ourselves if we didn't kind of acknowledge that. Mm. So I, I think it's about, you know, I, I forearm people with that. So that's what I mean, I think, where the industry can be, it can be quite a brutal industry. But I think there's also a part where we need to acknowledge that, that we, it is a business. But of course, there's another side to it where there, there can be a support. And this is what's happening now. There are an increasing amount of support networks coming in and people are actively trying to work out how can we facilitate this. The problem we've got with who picks up the bill 
So if you start to bring in a band under your umbrella of HR and you'll say EMI or whatever, do we put that onto the band um, as an expense that they pick up somewhere or do they pay for it? I think there will be a huge shift. Someone will do it and then the whole world will have to follow, but no mm. one's quite doing it yet. Um, so I'm waiting for it, but there definitely has been ripples that are moving around and I think there will be. Someone will pick it up somewhere. I think it's very interesting you talk about there about, you know, people deriving their self-worth from from, mm. this, from successful creativity, whatever success of a song means. But I think also there's another side around the touring aspect. And again, yeah, this, yeah, is, this yeah. came up in the interview I did with Chris McClure, obviously, mm. whose Vice documentary you appeared in, where, you know, one of the recurring... That, that documentary is obviously about addiction, and particularly yeah, alcohol yeah, addiction alcohol, was the one... Yeah. But, but that there's a broader narrative around the pressures of being a touring musician. It's one mm. thing to go through that sometimes struggle. Noel yeah. Gallagher claims he rolls out of bed and writes, you know, yeah. supersonic, but most musicians there's a creative process to go through. But then to spend the next 18 months, two years, taking that album around the country, around the world yeah. if you're bigger. Yeah. So I wonder if, if there's an element to some of your work where it's it's less about the creative side. There's some people who can knock yeah, songs yeah. out quite easily, yeah. but it's that that pressure of that weird lifestyle of living on the road mm. that you can't really compare with with anything no, else. No, I think really. it's an anomaly because even in you know visual art or anything, film, you make your artifact and there it goes. It flies. It does it. Whereas in music, you have to kind of regenerate that every evening. I mean, my background was in improvisation, so I did find it quite stifling on stage to kind of redo that. And I guess at that level, you're looking at a two-year cycle for those albums. Um, I think I think that's that's correct. You do lose that creativity, and if you're creative, you really want to get back to that. But I think that comes down to the essence of being okay. I'm a product in a way, and so therefore I have to deliver the goods, or I have to maximise the return on this product that we've created. So it comes down to okay, there may be some negotiation in that with your labour, whoever's funding you, but then it needs to be a continuum. It needs to be a you know, a conversation about what do you want as a label, what do you want as an artist, and let's meet in the middle, or let's not, at least you know where you stand. And I think a lot of the work, again, I'm also doing is about transparency, what's going to be expected of you. If we throw 10 grand at you as a young band and give you a development deal, this is what we expect. And in the past, it's been this nebulous, ambiguous type, yeah, we're signed, and the first thing I, when I, when I, I can't mention the label at the moment because it's going through, but the first thing I'd done with them was, was to get a PDF together, a very simple A4 PDF. This is what happens. If you do get dropped, and you may do get dropped, this is what you're. This is what you'll have. Mm. Um, mm. And the next stage is we're looking into trying to facilitate. Well, there may be a couple of sessions, even with a kind of a career coach, to say, well, what transferable skills have you got? Where can you go now? Because that's missing. You know, in my own experience, when when kind of the band fragmented, you just left. Literally, <laughs> the phone stops ringing. You're like, uh, hello. All these people were literally that I spent a lot of time bending over backwards to accommodate so they could pay bills and earn lots of money, they're suddenly like, you're redundant to them. Yeah, and that's really yeah. painful. For me, it was really painful for these perceived friendships that had just dropped overnight. And I had my own wounds as well, which contributed to the impact of that. But overnight, and, and through them, I, I got really angry and really like, oh, the music industry, it's all about them. But through time and processing it, realizing, well, it's not that I'm trying to uh, neutralize that, but it's about seeing for how it is, and it isn't the best model, and we're working on changing it, but there has to be a part where we have to consider, well, this is the the music industry, it's music and it's industry, therefore there is going to be an element of that. And of mm. course, all those mm. friendships that, that were over really hurt. But I think now I go into it and I try to forearm people with, look, you know, this is it's this business, it's not 
they're not really there are friendships but you have to view it as a, as a business put your business coat on you know and do your art but find that what works for you so you touched there on on joining baby shambles yeah. um, and that you know um not the start of your career because i know that you're in you're in but um i guess i was interested in you know that was the point where it wasn't the start of baby shambles you know Gemma had been Gemma clark yeah, had been yeah, the drummer before. Been around, yeah. and i guess i was interested in you know when she left the band mm. she said i could no longer be part of a machine that is destroying you and she, she directed yeah. that towards pete and i guess yeah. i'm interested with with your the kind of direction your career has gone in now, how you felt? I know we're going back quite a way here, fourteen years. Yeah, but I was around. Years, I was touring in the support bands. How so you felt stepping into that that kind of in uh, you yeah. know that, that environment, or maybe you didn't see it the same way that I, that I don't think I saw it the same way as she did. I totally hear where she's coming from, and I've always respected that. And obviously, like so I was in a band that we were supporting, Baby Shambles. So his first, I think, the first setup was was even before Gemma joined. It was him and. Seb on drums for the session. And Seb, what's his name? Seb, it's this Rochford. Oh, Rochford, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, Seb. Yeah, it's yeah. a gesture, amazing gesture. Um, so yeah, it was him, and I made a producer Robert Harder because he just produced our album. So at the same time, he's producing the White Sport, which myself, Patrick, and Andrew Aveling, who was in Add Into X and the Littlelands. Robert was also producing the Baby Shemmer's first single, which was kind of uh, sellotaped together because Pete wanted to get out of Libertines, he was contracted to do the second album, and there was all this hoo-ha, he would be leaving, threatened, and you know, there's lots of legal stuff going on with him, but he wanted to get out. So he was forming this side project, um, and there was this kind of different drummers going in and out. At one point I was in and out doing bits and pieces with him, so it was a bit of a collective. Um, and then that formulated into, we had uh, Peter Perrett's two sons from The Only Ones were on guitar and bass, it was Pete, and there was another drummer, I think, and then it ended up with, I think, one of the Pete Perrett's sons, Gemma and Pat, and then Drew came in. So it was all in this small transitional state. But at the same time, I was involved with different bands that were at the same studio, managed by James Mlord, the same manager, in another band with Patrick. So it was all this kind of, you know, incestuous stuff going on. It was centred on the Rhythm Factory. In the, in yeah, the all, yeah, 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 all, all around that area. It was a great time because there were all these other bands around us, you know, like, like Block Party, The Rakes. Who else? All these London-based bands, Razor Light. It was all kind of. It was really interesting. There's a whole book in there somewhere for someone. Um, yeah, really interesting time, and yeah, and then I knew obviously Patrick was in the band doing more with Pete. Just Patrick uh, Weldon. Yeah, I knew Patrick really well. We're you know, one of my good friends still, and um, he was doing this thing with Pete, and the White Sport was supporting. So it'd be Patrick would come on stage with us, then go off and jump back on stage with 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 Pete. I think Patrick was playing bass at the time. I think. But anyway, so I was always aware of that. So I spent half my week teaching, doing some white sports stuff and doing some session stuff as well. Um, yeah, it was always raucous. We'd go on tour. It'd be maybe after Towers of London and, and Baby Shambles at the time, which didn't really have an essence, I felt. I think it was still a bit, I hadn't stabilised. Um, yeah, and then Gemma left. Um, and then Patrick said, do you want to join? And because I knew them all anyway, I said, yeah, let's do it. And he said, I'll bring to my academy next week. I said, all right. Hmm, that's a baptism of fire. I know, yeah. yeah. You know, you know, ask how I felt. I felt really nervous. I felt like, God, I've just started to kind of stabilise my own career. I've got two or three days a week teaching. We spread and butter, paying the bills, and all these different musical projects, you know, starting to happen and starting to move. And uh, overnight, for a while, you know, might as well just go for it, give it a go. And next thing off we went. You know, that was it. Start of the journey, really. And then you drummed obviously on Down in Albion. 
and yeah, Shutter's, Na- Shutter's yeah. Nation as well, I believe. Yeah, yeah. All the big hits. And in terms, you know, what are your kind of standout memories of of, of those sessions and those those times? I think the, the 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 joining the band and within the first few weeks was such a massive psychological paradigm shift for me, getting my head around this this thing. What had just happened? It's like you can't you can't even imagine that experience. It's just it, it shatters all of your beliefs in in the world of you know being exposed to a much higher level of from things like drug use the people around the band seeing the inside of the music industry but it wasn't a slow build like most people get just in bam um so it was a real initiation of fire but i found it quite appealing in terms of it has a traumatic nature in a way um i think some of my history without unpacking it too deeply was quite there was lots of you know what i'd call trauma and lots of events that were quite dysregulating really so I was quite drawn to it um, yet a little bit apprehensive I think a little bit fearful but then I acclimatised to it I got used to that pace of life um, and stand out I think you're doing that first album learning about the music industry doing that first album and then at the end of the first album it seemed like it was going to collapse again um, I think the whole band had, you know the, the band was always on the verge of fragmenting and it did and then there was the big Kind of Patrick had, had I mean, I, I, he didn't leave. I think he was kind of pushed out. I think people were always nudged out for some reason. There was always this someone's going to, you know, get pushed out, whatever. It was just messy. So he ended up not being part of it. Yeah. And um, so then I took the reins and I thought, right, I don't want this to end because I really think it's got a lot more mileage. So then I instigated getting the blinding EP done and getting that license to Parlophone, which gave us a whole new lease of life. Um, and then from there we got signed by EMI, Parlophone, and then like a two album deal, Shot as Nation, and then I think the band fragmented again and they kind of pieced together, sellotaped together another album which didn't do very well and I think. Sequel to the prequel. Yeah, and I think that was the demise that triggered Libertines, I think he wanted to get back to something a bit more wholesome. Well I would say with Shot as Nation, and um, I've, said, I've said this on many occasions, maybe not on this podcast, but certainly back earlier in my career, I think Shot as Nation is one of the great lost. Yeah. British albums I mm. think certainly stands up to anything even the Libertines did yeah, in, yeah. in my view mm. so I wonder what was it I mean you were on the inside of that you were recording is there anything different you remember from those sessions in terms of I mean it's such a focused sounding yeah record. I think that comes down to Stephen Street I think Stephen yeah. is like I always held him in such high regard anyway from I guess being into some of those Blur albums and the other stuff he'd done um you know he's he's he has that unique ability to 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 hold on to some of the grit, yet make it really cohesive, and not over process. And I think that's why that album does have that juxtaposition of both of those things. I mean, down the album was great for what it was, but I think there's there's a few rough edges there, which depending on what day you listen to it are a bit too rough. Um, but I love both the same. I think they both have their own qualities. Um, but I think Stephen had that. Um, he he could really he could put his authority on getting people to deliver in the studio and I think he knew how to edit as well and mm. obviously it's signed to a big label so that had to be the case because it had to be playlisted and all the stuff that goes with that um, so I think that's that's what really helped on that made it really cohesive um, and yeah I don't know at the time it was you know we done really well really big album I think the reason it got slightly lost is I think we were a transition in indie music at that point 
yeah. 2008, I think the whole thing started to change. I think you, you always get this big kind of surge of Rode of Indiacs being signed and then it dilutes the whole thing and it collapses. I mean, we've seen this pattern since the 60s. There's a few key bands and then everyone jumps in, everyone signs the next Led Zeppelin. Then it becomes diluted, then it goes to somewhere else. You know, and, and we were on the tail end of that, which didn't help. And I think also his convictions didn't help. We lost a lot of opportunities from Radio 2 that would, would just persuaded BBC to get back on top of us and say, look, we'll support you because they were quite worried because of all the red top press. And then I think he got arrested somewhere and then everything was cut. So I think yeah. regarding the promo, I think we were on a trajectory to kind of be up there, I guess, with bands like Oasis, really, or Arctic Monkeys. I think you look at their, at that point, we were both on the same trajectory. You were playing arenas, I remember yeah, reviewing we you at the MEN arena. Yeah. And then I think because of, you know, the substance struggles and the arrests, I think it collapsed that and a lot of people were like, you know, it's too hot for us, too dangerous. We can't be seen to be supporting somebody that's going to be on the front of the whatever. Um, mm. So that didn't help, I think, in that sense. So I want to pick up on something you said a couple of minutes ago about when you joined the band, you quite quickly, I think, saw the business opportunities. You know, you, you were kind of, you said, integral in getting the blinding EP together. Mm. So I almost want to kind of on that sort of sort of theme, think about, you know, when, I remember when you joined and I was working for Enemy at the time, the view was that, Quite a clean living. The scene is quite a clean, mm. clean living. Switched on guy mm. from the London and East London music scene mm. had joined the band, and I was always interested in that juxtaposition of. It seemed to me in baby shambles, you either had the people like yourself, Drew, who were mm. fairly switched on, clean living, and yeah, then on yeah. the other side you had Pete and mm. other members who maybe shared some of Pete's yeah, lifestyle yeah, yeah. choices. Yeah. So I always wondered how you kind of how that worked. You know how how you kind of. Um, so not reconciled is the wrong word I'm looking for. Yeah. But how how, how yeah. does a band work like that? How do you have... kind of navigate that? Yeah. Well, I think for me it was it was a fact that, or for all of us, it was sorry, it was uh, it was never going to work if that didn't happen. So, like a family, everybody kind of adopts and adapts to their own part of the family. Um, because if I was, you know, Drew and I were both kind of into those those high level crack cocaine and heroin, it would never have worked. The whole thing would have collapsed. So by our very nature, we would have slotted into this position of being more um, foundational and holding. So, but then I think our personalities were like that as well. But regarding how it worked, I guess it was the only way it would have worked, really. I don't think I stepped in it and identified, right, I need to be this certain person. I think, you know, I, I, was, I knew I was lucky. I knew I was in a really lucky position. Um, so took it with both hands. It's like, mm. right, okay, what can I do to try to put on this and to make it work? Make it work for everyone, make the band a success, make the music the best it can be. And, yeah, from a selfish perspective, I really enjoy what I'm doing. I'm earning money doing what I really love doing. Why wouldn't I want to try to make maximise that potential? Um, same with Drew, I think. I mean, we both realise, okay, right, we've got a really good shot at this. Mm. Um, mm. Whatever self-destructive, you know, internal... Um, events were going on for the others who knows but for me it was like yeah okay let's do this let's do the best we can do it um yeah I, I didn't see it as a big shift I had to be I'd just been a school teacher so I was you know I was getting up every day and teaching in GCSE music mm. so for me okay you're gonna get up at half six every day and do a job it's all right but I'd rather be out there you know touring the world so it's like right here we go I think that's such an interesting juxtaposition you know the the purity and I'm doing kind of the the rabbit fingers, you know, the, the yeah, very yeah, pure yeah. job of being a school teacher, but then, you know, Pete Doherty, you're there, hang, yeah, you yeah. know, you're you're spending a lot of your working life with, at the time, mm. and I'd say even to a degree now, 
the most notorious rock yeah. star yeah, on yeah, the yeah, planet, probably. Yeah. He's got a lot of struggles, you're right, yeah. I think it was, I mean, for me, as I say, I grew up in an environment um, where I experienced a lot of, you know, not the same, but similar struggles, really. A lot of people that were kind of struggling with substance and were quite, you know, were struggling maybe psychologically. So it wasn't like this pure environment of teaching and I go into this deep, dark world. It was like, I, I, I already, from my upbringing, had seen probably quite a large continuum of people. In fact, I was probably more out of my comfort zone being a school teacher than I was in the depths of East London, I think. Okay. You know, I would never, as a 16, 17, I would never imagine myself being a school teacher growing up. So it's something that I found later. I didn't really have any, any musical stuff, you know. I was kind of nudged out of school in times, kicked out of music classes. I really struggled at school. And then it was only after that, I went and done a BTEC and thought, oh, hold on, this is like at 19 years old. If I put some time in and practice, I'll get some validation and maybe I can achieve something. It was never a big, you know, 12 year old kid, you know, why don't you try and make it when you're older? It's something I fell into because I didn't realize I could do anything else. Mm. So in that sense, the, 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 the scrappy nature of the East London music scene was probably more um, familiar to me in its energies and essence than it was being a school teacher. So if I was to have to hold the both, there was probably, not anymore because I've grown with different experiences, but I'd say in that point in my life, yeah, it was probably the continuum of experiences I was able to hold both, but one was far more comfortable than the other. Mm. So you made a couple of albums with the band, toured the world, um, you know, also worked on Pete's solo album. Yeah. And then you left the band in, in 2010. <laughs> left the band, sorry, I'm trying to get And I, I remember, uh, just, yeah, just for listeners, we're struggling with lights here. I think, I think that the room's ring. being haunted. It is. Um, it's Pete. I remember at the time reporting on, on this and, and there was a meltdown, but it was meltdown. never specified what the meltdown was. <laughs> Is that the enemy headline? I left a band because of a meltdown. Well, the meltdown was this. I just turned up one day and he says, I don't want to be in a band with you and Drew anymore. And I went, all right, and see you in court then. And it was pretty like, I mean, I got to the point where I was pretty, you know, angry with it. And, um, and, and you know, the whole band was always on the verge of fragmenting. I think it wasn't some big continuum and, and off it goes um, so was there a level of volatility there that always. you could meet yeah, a different peak yeah, every yeah, day yeah, and it, yeah. depending on which way the I think not a different. I think just the infrastructure by its very nature was very fragmented um, and yeah and I think I was at the time I was really burnt out and at the time I just didn't have any energy in me rather than trying to work out what the problem was and you know why suddenly we had been replaced I just think I was I was, I was burnt out and I was just like alright brilliant great and then I was you know got to the point of I had all these dates booked um literally just had a child I just just about to have a child and I'm thinking okay well I've got no income and legally this isn't really fair and you're not sitting me down and saying look this is the reason no no other reason ever given but there mm. never was when people came in and out it's just on a whim um and then the the kind of the he had kind of a couple of guys like I guess as administrators at the time and they kind of suddenly got all official which had never happened before generally you'd get sacked but you'd kind of come back in and you know suddenly handed this document to sign over all my royalties and it's like do you really think I'm that naive so then I you know so then I got backing from people I knew got a bit messy but it was all resolved in the end but it's those things and I think it's such a shame that the bad you know the the bad flavour between us got like that but after a few years, you know, it's kind of all forgotten about to the point where, you know, we're all talking now and that stuff's almost just been pushed 
pushed mm. out, which mm. is, you know, it's, it's, it's nice that people can have those experiences. But yeah, at the time, I think I was just, I was just burnt out by it all. I think I'd spent so much energy, and like I said, I was just about to become a dad, which was totally freaking me out in a way. It's like a huge thing. It's, mm. it's like, well, wow, this big changing point, you know, is what you said earlier. You have kids and you think, you see things differently, you have to. Um, it makes you sensible, I think, is probably yeah, the way it does. Yeah, I just, I think I just, I don't know. For me, it was, you know, it was a bit of, I think, it was an internal meltdown on my, my side. It's like, what? What am I going to do? Because I'm used to doing this. How am I going to survive? I've got no income, and you're saying I can't even finish these gigs. I don't really know what's happened. Um, yeah, and it was a really horrible time, really horrible experience. And I say, yeah, and then the phone stops ringing, etc. Um, but then exploring that and exploring why that had such a big impact on me from through therapy, realizing well, you know, there's a lot of my own bumps and bruises which are contributing to the impact this has had. And from being able to sit down with somebody to really hear it out, to hear about all those different parts of my life, really unpacking it, thinking, yeah, okay, so I can do many other things. This is going to be okay. And start releasing solo albums. And of course, it wasn't on the same level as Baby Shambles, but it was really gratifying musically. Um, yeah, and done a bit of teaching, done some studying, still performing, done a lot of DJing. And uh, I kind of look back now and I think that probably almost saved my life, to be honest, mm, that mm. incident. I look back now, I think, that was a really good thing to have happened. You know, I think these things happen for a reason. I don't know what I would have ended up doing. <clears throat> that band would have continued going on. I think it's interesting what you say there about, you know, it, it sounds to me from the outside that Baby Shambles was a dictatorship, which would mm. almost be fine if the band was called Pete Doherty, mm. which is current, you know, his new band, Pete Doherty, and the Peter yeah. Nitras, isn't it called? But the band was called Baby Shambles, and it was a band, yeah, yeah. and you were quite invested by the sounds of it in terms of, you know, you weren't was, a higher yeah. hand. No, I was thoroughly invested. You know, and, and often these, you know, solo artists who mm. break off from bands will have hired hands, and that's their job. They yeah, turn up, yeah, yeah. they punch in, they punch well, out. Well, doing it now, in effect, you know. With, with Liam, with yeah. Liam, and I think we all know where we stand, and, and it was interesting on the juxtaposition of when we went in to do Pete's solo album, because I smelt then that suddenly, if you're in a band together, and then two of the four members are suddenly being almost waged. That was a huge shift, and I thought it was going to be really hard to go back, and obviously subsequently for me it didn't go back to that. But I always knew, and you know, without being sinister about the politics of the administration team around him, who knows, but yeah, you're right, and I think um, there is that, there is it was a dictatorship, but also I'm fully aware that he was the main pool. You know, people weren't really coming to see me as a drummer, um, he was really, and if it wasn't for him and the Libertines, they wouldn't have set up that whole platform for us to be so successful. So I have to, you know, I have to respect that. Um, but on the same time, yeah, I, I think I felt quite disposable um, as well. So it was, it's trying to hold both of those parts really. This, yeah, he is, he is the the drawer of the band really. Um, but we are a band. I guess it's a bit like the Smiths in a way, isn't it? That essence of everybody makes up, but there are well. Gets two now, but yeah, the essence is is, is weighed favourably. Um, so I was always aware of that, and I always respected that. But um, yeah, when it came to just being kind of replaced, it's like oh, ouch. Mm, mm. But I guess there lies the business, really. That's and you you moved into doing solo work with mm. Roses King. Yeah, Castles, yeah, my stuff, yeah. Which um, I always thought was massively underrated. And yeah, didn't. me too. <laughs> um, and I think as well, it's inter- I was interested to ask you almost, do you, do you think this, the Baby Shambles side project tag, mm. which inevitably 
were you know was attached to that, and mm. you know you you understood why that was the case. Do you think that was a curse or a or a blessing for that music? Did that did yeah. that make it harder for you to yeah. get it listened to with with kind Probably. of a clear head? Probably, yeah, people? but it was different stuff, and you know I lent into that, and of course as a marketing ploy, why wouldn't you? And you've got a fan base of thousands that are getting top ten singles and albums. Why wouldn't you lean into that? Um, so no, I. I I, know, I think we take that risk. We can either be quite sterile about it and say, I've nothing to do with that, but I am who I am. And yeah, I was a drummer of that band. People know me for that, so why not lean into that? And even now, you know, a lot of the DJ stuff and I, my solo records, it, it does lean into that as well. Um, I don't really have any, any big desire to push totally out there and say, this is me and don't, you know, don't kind of cross-pollinate us together because it was me, it's all me. And some people aren't going to like it from the Baby Shambles camp, some people are down to them they want to buy it they mm. buy it if they don't mm. they don't still want to make an album it's like whatever I'm doing it because I really want to do it and I had heard you'd done some more stuff with Shambles after, after leaving yeah, is, is yeah, that right yeah, so have well, you... some of the Libertines tracks that were on their latest album there was two or three I think that we'd already done demos for the next Baby Shambles album um, so there was some pre-production yeah I've got a nice little collection at home of, of all those demos so. So is that for the that the third album, or is that the upcoming fourth there were, album? There were a few on the third album, Baby Shambles, and then there were a few on the Libertines as well. I think I've got five or six which appeared as finished products on both of those. And are you planning on doing any kind of further work with, with them? Pete in that capacity? Yeah, we've, we've been talking. Um, I think it's just dependent on what happens with the Libs, when that kind of, uh, he has to deliver whatever for the label um, but no we've been talking I guess it's trying to work out where people are I mean Drew's doing his thing at the moment with Liam so um, yeah I, I don't really know I mean from from what I know at this very minute I would totally uh, expect to be a part of it who knows that could change within a few days and I may not mm, be mm. but my intention is that I would really, really, really love to and from the communications I would be led to believe that that's totally the case when it'll happen, who knows? We were penciling in maybe something in the future, but I guess this is as good as mine. And in terms of Roses King Castles, are you doing? Yeah, I'm just about to. I'm just preparing to give another EP. So I released an EP under my own name, like an acoustic thing, because I was doing Roses stuff, and it was all bandy. And then it was really difficult to get uh, to try to budget to get a band on tour. You know, I'd go up, we'd go and do whatever Newcastle and pay for all the hotels and. And they don't pay you, and you think, God, I've got to pay my band because I don't want the band just to be dragged along and, and not respect them. So I pay the band, I pay all the hotels, and it was costing me. And I thought, as much as I'd love to do it, it's a bit too much of an expensive labour of love. So I've done the last EP under my own name, Evan Fajic, uh, Pledge Music, which has collapsed now. Um, released that, was really good, done like a couple of weeks tour, didn't do too much on it, didn't do any of the PR stuff. But the next time will be going to be under RKC stuff again um, and that's what I'll continue releasing hopefully an EP every other year do solo stuff some band stuff um, yeah and it depends how much I really want to invest in the whole machine in the PR and all that stuff I don't know how much energy I've got for that anymore but mm. I've got a very small fan base and they're consistent and uh, I'm you know I feel quite lucky to be able to keep making music that I want to do and people appreciate it really it's never going to be arena feeling and I'm not sure I'd want to do that but you know, it, it ticks that box around creative endeavours. I guess I'm interested in your view of, of where it fits in with kind of the current guitar scene. You know, you emerged at a time where, you know, on this podcast, myself and Sarah have almost started referring to the noughties and the yeah, mid-noughties yeah, up to yeah, the 10s do, yeah. the golden age of guitar, mm. you know, and, and we're not, probably not living in a golden age no, of guitar. No, no, it's very electronic, so, yeah. So how, how, how do you think your 
your new music fits in with that? How do you see it evolving with with? Kind yeah, of it's it's it's, um, it's much more electronic-y because the third album I released was really quite electronic-y, and uh, I think for me it's like sometimes it's quite practical because it means that if I go out, I can take out like a like a backing track and me and a bass player or me and a drummer because then it means I don't lose as much money. That's the bottom line. It's really quite brutal when the reality of it is that. With a band, you know, be looking at maybe a three-piece, but I think that the, the new stuff I'm doing is much more electronic because I've just, my previous album was just me and an acoustic guitar, a lot of finger-picking stuff. And I really wanted to do that, and now I kind of want to get back into production. Um, so I think it'll be a bit more electronic. But I, I kind of, I'll just do whatever I feel I want to do. And that might mean anything. It might mean a big orchestral arrangement, and then I won't tour it. But I don't really know. Yeah, I do. I do think it's an interesting time because there's the guitar stuff. Yeah, I think it's there, but it's not in the public eye as much. It's a huge, you know, a huge big scene. But now the bands that would have been doing arenas are now doing, you know, scalas. I think. I mean, the whole thing's just been squished in a bit mm. um, because there's so many different types of music coming out. Um, yeah, I, I, I do prefer guitar music stuff. Um, yeah, so who knows? And just do, do you see guitar kind of having a a big kind of return come back? These things are cyclical usually. I hope they, they are. You know, there's a cynical part of me that thinks we're never going to ever see anything as big as I mean. You know, I guess we had in, from my generation. I had the big surge of baggy stuff, and in fact, I saw saw indie stuff. So you know, the the real indie stuff um, from Wedding Present and all those kind of things. And I saw the baggy stuff, which was the first crossover. Then I saw Britpop stuff. Then we had the naughty big burst going from the Stokes to White Stripes, Libertines, Beg Shambles, kind of pilfering out after that. I think we haven't had a resurgence yet, and I'm not sure we will. And, and I really do sincerely hope I'm proved wrong, because mm. I would love m- nothing more than that to be brought back, because my essence is in that scene anyway. Um, I don't think we will, and I really do hope I'm wrong. Mm. But I'm not sure now. I think things are a bit too diluted, and people can go and listen to their bespoke genre <clears throat> without any universal big stuff, unless it's real pop stuff. You know, when I listen now or I hear, I catch occasionally these the, the big main 10 acts, I'm just like, you know what, I've never felt more disconnected from commercial pop music than mm. in modern times. Mm. My, my kids listen to some, you know, more, I guess, uh, I don't even know, you know, like, <laughs> I don't even know how to describe it really, but I just, I can't grasp it. I'm like, I don't get it. I'm the same in my kids, to be honest, it's, all, it's all YouTube stuff. Yeah, or well, TikTok they're on, and some of the music, yeah, I'm like, you know what, that. I mean, I, it's cool, I think it's really good that they're into their own thing, why not? But I just, for me, it's like I've never felt as removed as I do now from the current trend of mainstream music. Mm. Um, yeah, and I, it is what it is, and I do hope I'm wrong, and I do hope there's another swing of the pendulum that goes back to bands, but I don't know, the cynic in me says I don't think we will see it. Mm. Conscious of time, I guess I just yeah, want to swing the, the pendulum mm. kind of back to what we were originally talking about. And for me, the million dollar question mm. coming in here today was thinking about, you know, your experiences in, in psychotherapy and, yeah. and psychology and, and your also your experience of working in Baby Shambles mm. with Pete Doherty again, the most notorious rock star <laughs> of the last 20 years. And, and you know, I, I recognise when I was thinking about these questions, there's something called patient confidentiality. Mm. So the last question I'm going to ask you is, as in I'm not going to ask you, you know, have you treated Pete? Is that, is that, is that wrong? <laughs> no, right? I haven't treated Pete, though. But I guess I'm interested in thinking, do yeah. you think, given that he's failed to kick his demons, you know, yeah, even a yeah. couple of weeks ago yeah, he was yeah, arrested in Paris, still, yeah. I guess I was interested in whether you think 
the types of things that you're learning yeah, to do, yeah. the type of techniques could be of help to someone who, again, you know, you, I think you they can, but a friend I'm, and a colleague. Maybe he doesn't want to, you know, and I think that's all right as well. I mean, it's going to effectively be potentially destructive for him, you know, physically or psychologically, but maybe he's not at the point where he wants to. And I think if people aren't at that point, then there's nothing nobody can do. Um, you know, that sounds quite brutal, but I think I've seen quite a few people in the press, high profile, that have lost that battle to their demons. And I know people that have done everything to try to help. And from my work in the addiction clinic as well, some people just aren't at that space. And you can, you can, you know, you could handcuff someone to a radiator. And if they're not mm. ready, they won't be ready. And you think, well, you know, the cliche, they need to hit rock bottom. Well, what is rock bottom? You know, some people die and, and that's rock bottom. There's no comeback. And I don't know what it will be, but some people just never want to to face that journey, and that's that's their choice in a way. Because Pete seems indestructible, frankly. He does, yeah, well, yeah. I guess seems it, but as we all know, the reality of that is very different. I mean, we see it all through a media eye, and we will see it with this maybe kind of pseudo glamour attached to it from the music we will love. But I think there's, there's maybe a different side to that story, and as we all age, things hit us differently. So. Yeah, you know, uh, there is a concern for him, but ultimately I think we're all our own people mm. and we all got mm. our own journeys to try and navigate as best we can. There's, there's never been any, um, you know, judgment on him for that. I think there's been some times where I think some of his choices through drug use have been really destructive to the band I was in with him. But as a person, I think, you know, he's, he's doing the best kind of, sounds a bit therapistic, woo-woo, but doing the best at the moment with what he's got. Mm. It's interesting what you said there about wanting to you know, wanting to, to deal with demons, because he has, if you follow his career history, and again, that was my job for 10 years, Yeah. you know, there have been points where he has gone to Thailand to rehab, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And, and seems to be getting to a place, and mm. then it was almost like the cycle of, dis you don't hear from him for a while, so you yeah, know that, yeah. you know, he does the enemy interview that says he's clean, yeah, you, know what that, yeah. you know what that usually means in, in kind of a week's time, but yeah. I guess, you know, is, is it... Has it, has it been difficult to watch that with a, someone who's a friend? He's not, he's not a cartoon yeah, tabloid character to you. it is difficult, you, you know, because you know. I do care about him and I do think I'd, I'd hate to see anything, you know, one of those dreaded headlines come up. But ultimately, I have to disconnect, like I think a lot of people that care from do. Mm. Because there's only mm. a point with so much you can say, look, you know, you, you know you're destroying yourself in a way and, you know, it's, it's, I think there's only so much you can do for people if they don't want it, really. So yeah, we, I say we've come full circle. We've actually got to wrap up because you've got yeah, uh, I'm sorry, you've got, I've got, you've got another client, appointment yeah. coming, and this yeah. is this is genuine. This interview is being carried out. <laughs> yeah, in Adam's, uh, yeah, we're not we're not bluffing. And uh, and, and uh, yeah, so I'll I'll let you treat your your next patient. Yeah, well, thanks yeah, very yeah. much for joining us. Thank you for coming. Yeah, thanks for for having me. Thanks, Adam. So yeah, quite a wide ranging chat I had with uh, Adam there, uh, Jamie. What 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 kind of stood out for you? What what were the interesting insights? Given that you've you've spoken to him quite a lot down the years. Yeah, I did. It was interesting hearing him talking about the Baby Shambles band dynamics. And that, that certainly reflect well, what he said certainly reflected what I saw on the occasions that I interviewed them back in the day. Um, I, I remember covering a Baby Shambles gig in Paris. Uh, I made small talk about the band sound checking in the afternoon, just when we were sort of sitting around the hotel. And Adam or, Adam or Drew, the bassist, I can't remember who it was, um, just kind of laughed at the idea of, of doing a proper soundtrack, which I guess sums up the baby shambles spirit in one way. But I think those two, so the rhythm section, did actually go to the venue to soundcheck, while Pete Dotty and the guitarist Mick just sort of went on some kind of other more exciting business or pursuits. I remember Pete buying a kitten that afternoon and walking into the Holiday Inn lobby with it 
just sort of swaddled in his coat and I guess then perhaps wondering how he was going to get the animal through UK customs the next day but um, yeah that, that, that the, the dynamic is between um, I guess the more sober side of the band and the more chaotic side um, that he talked about was definitely what I saw back in the, back in the day as well. Yeah, I think the million dollar question for me going into this uh, into this interview, and I feel like I got about seventy five percent of the way there, was wondering, you know, was there truly a link between the fact that he worked with Pete Doherty and now he's become a psychotherapist? You know, is is it when you work with someone who clearly needs help, is that sometimes the spark to then go off and and do some like something like that? Because you've got the perfect case study, haven't you? There, I guess, for someone who needs someone to get in his head and and sort things out a little bit. Although, you know, as Adam admitted. Um, or he alluded to at the end of the interview, you know, Pete doesn't seem to really want help, never has. Yeah, I think the whole thing with Pete Doherty is he's got this image as being a, you know, I guess he would see it as a, a, as a libertine for life and living that kind of um, chaotic, non-conformist existence way beyond the years that a lot of people kind of pack it in and get sensible jobs like being a psychotherapist or whatnot. Um, that's part of who he is, I guess. Um, maybe he'll be like, um, a survivor like Iggy Pop and just keep going for years. I guess it's it's for people like Adam to work out on the couch, I guess, rather than me. Rather than uh, complete non-professionals like you or I. I think the other thing that, that that struck me was just, you know, again, I mentioned the other side of the interview that, um, you know, this that mental health had kind of become a running theme, you know, that we'd interviewed Tom Clark and mental health had come up and Phil Etheridge from the Twang and mental health had, had come up and John McClure and just that, you know, artists are, are much more kind of willing to be open about that and open about some of the pressures of the music industry. And I thought it was interesting he was talking about, you know, the life of a kind of touring musician and, and how kind of unique a job that is um, in terms of your mental health and in terms of, you know, kind of the, the grind. Although you could argue, you know, most careers are, are a bit of a grind. Maybe it's just that, you know, people are becoming a bit more switched on now to the fact that, um, you know, musicians aren't just kind of performing monkeys that you wind up at the start of the day and then... Um, you know, off they go, sort of thing. Do, do, have, have, is is that a theme you've noticed in any interviews you've done with um, artists in in recent years? Um, well, I haven't interviewed many bands in quite a lot of years, but I think it was interesting what Adam was saying about it being kind of a life of a freelancer, like a freelance worker, being in a band like that, which I can relate to being a, being a freelance writer myself. But again, that feeding into the idea that sometimes you can have a huge support network behind you and the ability to go to rehab and have that paid for or you know having that safety net to an extent sometimes that can be the result of of being in a in a band and having those around you but also it can go completely the other way as well i mean i mean the, i guess the one of the biggest examples of that is is amy winehouse who um, died from alcohol related issues and i mean that's came from her lifestyle as a musician where she didn't have commitments in the daytime and she would basically get up and go down the boozer in Camden just spend her days drinking and it was a reflection of of, of that kind of diary that you are allowed to have yourself and the people around you allow you to have um, and she didn't end up in that safety net and with that support network so it can kind of kind of go go either way I think um, yeah it is interesting how Adam said that you know he joined Baby Shambles and days or weeks later was suddenly on stage at you know, Brixton Academy I guess playing one of the biggest shows of his life and suddenly in, in the eye of that storm and the eye of that whirlwind um, so 
you can become part of these things really quickly and also it can end very quickly as well and so whether whether you've got that support network for work for a particular period of time that rug can get pulled from under you although i do i do have to say like kind of when i was you know first reading the tales and the stories about the legendary excess of of, of bands from the you know 70s or 80s or heavy metal or ozzy osbourne or sure ride or this and the other it would be, it would be kind of a, a shame if we lost that element of chaos as well certainly in terms of the the narratives of these um, of these bands, but um, yeah, I can understand that we have to be aware of the uh, human cost and consequences as well. And there's, there's an interesting point you raised there as well about the rug being pulled from underneath artists. I mean, that's exactly what happened with with Adam. It sounded to me like he was almost booted out of Baby Shambles on a bit of a whim by Pete and his. Was it he described them as his advisors or his his kind of wingmen? Um, yeah, so I thought that that was an interesting element that you know it it, it was very easy to be thrown out of that group, wasn't it? Yeah, I, you know, Baby Shambles have, well, they've always been Pete Dotty's, you know, they've always been a, a, a vehicle for Pete's songwriting and he was a, him as a performer as well. So um, I guess it shouldn't be too surprising that um, there is an element of risk being part of that setup that you can be dropped at any time. Um, and they've had a, a huge revolving cast of members coming in and out through the years. It was interesting that he said that um, Pete told him that um, he didn't want to be in a band with Drew. McConnell, the bassist, as well as 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 Adam at the, at the same time, because they've been playing together in Baby Shambles since, and he wanted to get him on his solo stuff as well. So that relationship seems to be repaired as well. But I guess you know with these things, it can be as easy to come back in again as it can be to get booted out. So um, I, yeah, I, I don't I don't know if we'll ever see um, Baby Shambles again, in, certainly in terms of it being a you know a, a, a proper project in terms of getting on the well, the wagon of writing and recording you know with the libertines now being back on their feet regularly playing big shows and recording it's kind of hard to see where an appetite for a big scale shambles return would come from and you know pete dotty has the solo albums and shows on the on the back burner for yeah 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 and that seems to be taking up the downtime when when the libertines are kind of off the boil as such but you know you never know with these with uh, with him so um it'd be yeah it'd be nice to, even if it was just a sort of quick hit pub gigs or something it'd, it'd be nice to um to see the guys back on stage together yeah i'm interested in uh from listeners what do you think will happen from here do you think we'll see shambles again what did you make of adam feechek's feechek's comments uh yeah you can get in touch with the show on demotapespod at gmail.com and also on twitter at demotapespod and instagram at Demo Takes Pod, if you really want to get hold of me on my personal Twitter, that's Rick underscore J underscore Martin. Jamie, do you want to give out your personal Twitter for any any comments and feedback? Yeah, if you want, you can tweet me at Jamie Fullerton one. Only Baby Shambles Limitees related, obviously. Of course, of course, and uh, yeah, if you what, another kind of small favour, we ask this every episode. If you can give us a five star rating on on iTunes, that uh, really does help with getting us up the charts on Apple Podcasts. We did hit hit the heady heights of number thirteen in the Apple uh, Podcast Music Charts for about ten minutes a couple of months ago. So uh, you know, keen to return to that kind of rarefied air near the top of the charts um, again. But otherwise, yeah, I guess we'll wrap up this episode. Jamie, thanks for. Guesting, did you enjoy it? Was it was it was it good to appear on demo tapes again? It was a definite. It was definitely the highlight of a rainy day in Taipei. It was definitely the best thing you've done over the last two hours. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining us. And yet, otherwise, uh, we will see you on the next episode. Bye.